Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 21. Matthew 5, 21, and while you're finding that text, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help during this time. Our Father, we come to you now with really what is the, the pinnacle of Christian worship, to open your word and to read it and to grasp its meaning so that we may become more like Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would make us to have humble hearts today, to hear the things that you would have us to hear, to learn and to grow, to put down all barriers of pride and arrogance and self-will so that we might open ourselves up to the wonderful changing power of the Word of God. We thank you again that we hold in our hands the Word of Christ and in some sense it's even more special that the words we will consider this morning are words that he spoke while on this earth in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I pray, Lord, that with the same impact that they had 2,000 years ago, his words would impact our hearts, take down the strongholds and the, the forces that would keep us from Christ-likeness in our own stubbornness, and instead allow us to experience the joy and the delight of becoming more and more like our Savior. We pray these things for his honor, for his glory, that he might have a spotless bride. Amen. I think Mother's Day is a good reminder about the importance of relationships in the life of the Christian. And this concern for relationships really headlines this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is on a hillside overlooking the beautiful Sea of Galilee. And we've begun the section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus, as we've said the last couple of weeks, really gets into the heart of what we would call New Covenant Law the law of God for the new covenant believer. And last time we established that Jesus is fulfilling the entirety of the Old Testament in terms of messianic prophecy, in terms of being the agent of all other prophecies of the coming kingdom, judgment and so forth. All of that coming to pass is all through Christ. And now he's issuing comparisons to the law of Moses. Six times in the rest of chapter 5, Jesus will say, You have heard it said, but I say to you, to compare and to flesh out laws Moses gave, which are now being crafted by Jesus into new covenant law, the old covenant becoming obsolete, the new covenant based in the coming sacrifice of Christ on the cross, now coming to the forefront. And now, after having established the authority of His law, and by extension, the coming New Testament, which contains the law of Christ, Jesus goes straight for the jugular. And he jumps right to the heart of the very thinking and the attitude and the, the words and the actions of the follower of Christ, of the recipients of the new covenant, the truly regenerated kingdom citizen, he addresses the issue of anger. I don't know how this has worked, but for years now, it seems that on Mother's Day, the very wrong topic comes up in the course of preaching. I didn't plan this. This was the next thing Jesus was going to talk about. But he addresses the issue of anger. Our message this morning fits into our bigger mini-series, Authentic Christianity, in that Jesus 
rightly and bluntly is giving characteristics and standards of the genuine, authentic believer in Christ. The first two messages in this mini-series, we saw that the true believer, the authentic Christian, lights the world. And last week we saw that he elevates the Bible. This week I'd like to show you that the authentic Christian disciplines the mind. He disciplines the mind. The authentic Christian disciple disciplines the mind, rather, concerning anger. Because the mind is where it all starts. The mind is where all the problems, all the sin begins in regard to anger. Now, just to help us be a little more comfortable with this, I want to give you a a rather lengthy description. This is from the Bible, and I'll tell you where in a moment. But this is a lengthy description of a Christian who has really conquered sinful anger in his life. I'm going to give you a long description from Scripture, then I'll give you a very short description. Here's the long description of a Christian who has conquered sinful anger in his life. He has a daily total commitment even in the face of injustice and unfairness, even in the situation of being horribly abused and maligned, he is committed to Christ and he's content. He's content, he's peaceful. He possesses an instinct to always and only look to God for help, to never look to any other source, to never look to personal vengeance, to never look to any sort of uh, retorts or anger He simply looks to God. He could be characterized by having a patience to wait. He rests in the Lord for as long as is necessary until such a time as the Lord would come to his aid and come to his help. He's content to wait as long as needs as long as it needs to happen. All throughout his time of waiting, he's totally loyal, utterly dedicated to the Word of God even to his own harm, even to his own detriment. He will stay loyal to the word. He possesses a beautiful ability to cry out to God for justice, but he doesn't express internal sinful anger. He doesn't express external sinful anger in the least. He possesses a peacefulness based on the knowledge that God will exact judgment for all the wrongs that have been done to him. He possesses a total helplessness before God and a willingness to respectfully defer all revenge, all judgment, all to God and God alone. He will take none of it himself. That's a long description of a Christian who's really conquered sinful anger in his life. And I I took that description from Revelation chapter 6. And the short description of a Christian who is also really conquered sinful anger in his life, is also taken from Revelation 6. And the the short description of this Christian who has mastered sinful anger is that he's dead. He's in heaven. We read about this, of course, in our description of the tribulation period martyrs. Listen to their indignation without sin. Revelation 6, 9 And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the witness which they they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them and it was told to them that they should rest for a little while longer, until the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed 
also. They are undoubtedly filled with a righteous indignation which drives them to address God, drives them to cry out for justice. But they're perfected. And not one bit of that indignation is sinful anger. Of course, we're not in that situation. We who are still left on the earth don't have the luxury of having been perfected yet. We're still on our journey of progressive sanctification. And Jesus goes right to the mind of the believer because this is an area of sanctification that he expects to be important. He expects all who are his to take this very seriously, to grow with all urgency, with all expediency. And just to set up our time this morning, what we're going to see beginning in verse 21 of chapter 5 is that Jesus is going to expose the various ways that sinful anger is expressed. And in fact, he's going to do so in an escalating sequence of increasing severity. And then he's going to give two examples of following him in obedience, being obedient to his commands concerning anger. The first is an example between two brothers, two believers in Christ, and the second is an example between a believer and anyone in the world whatsoever. But his commands concerning anger, in verses 21 and 22, this, these are the, this is the foundation for the two examples, so we'll spend the majority of our time on the first two verses. Matthew five twenty-one. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. Now here in verse 21, Jesus quotes from Exodus 20, verse 13, Deuteronomy 5, verse 17, the sixth commandment, that you shall not murder. He summarizes the legal procedure under the Old Testament law, and in fact, he, he draws from a number of law passages in actually four out of five of the books of the law. Exodus 21.12, he draws on this, that he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. This is the clear assertion of a death penalty that is ordained by God. It's reiterated in Leviticus 24.17, if a man strikes down the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. But to be very clear, this was not a law of revenge. This was not a law of just anarchy and chaos of people taking vengeance on their own there was to be a trial the accused was even to be protected until he could stand trial there were cities of refuge set up for the accused numbers 35 verse 12 says and the city shall be for you as a refuge from the avenger so that the manslayer will not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment murder cases are difficult And so in Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 8, Moses gives a procedure from God for a murder case that's too difficult to discern. There's there's not enough evidence. And yet, everyone knows that something terrible has happened. And in this procedure, the judgment is to involve God himself as well as the priest or the judge who's involved. And whatever punishment is decreed by the judge or the priest is to be taken seriously. That if there's not quite enough evidence and yet there's, there's a serious breach of faith and that somebody has died and almost everybody knows who did it but they can't prove it. The judge or the priest with God's help is to issue a penalty. And if the person protests that penalty and says, oh, but that's not fair, then it turns into the death penalty immediately. 
Jesus is affirming the seriousness, the weightiness of a murder trial. Now, all of his listeners understand this. And I think all of us as human beings and citizens of a nation, we understand the weightiness of murder, of taking another life. But this is where his listeners do a double take and they're shocked. He's summarizing scriptures they know, but now he assigns the same level of seriousness simply to anger. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. This is shocking to the listener. And to illustrate just how serious he is about this, Jesus uses the current system of judgment that the Jews would be familiar with, and he references three courts. He references just the courts. This is the local town council. It would be Sanhedrin with a, a small s, um, usually about a, a dozen and a half or two dozen elders in the city that formed the court. Then you had the Sanhedrin, capital S, the, the Jerusalem Council, which had supreme authority. We might call them the Supreme Court. But then he references the highest court of all, the, the court of God himself, the court of heaven. The court of God himself has the authority to condemn even to the fiery hell. Now, keep in mind that some in Jesus' audience who were listening to this sermon, they were undoubtedly those who would turn against him, the scribes, the Pharisees, and that Jesus, many times in Matthew, he's going to call them out for using the letter of the law of Moses for their own sinful benefit. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, in Matthew 19, for example, Pharisees came to Jesus to test his view of Deuteronomy 24 about divorce. And they had twisted this law to their own benefit. They challenged him to agree with them. Matthew 19.3, and some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? They were looking for a yes, that's lawful. But Deuteronomy 24, that's what they're referencing. It doesn't teach that. But they took it to mean that they could get rid of their first wives and move on to other women as much as they wanted to, all while boasting, well, I'm keeping the law. This is my seventh wife, but I've never broken God's law. In similar fashion, here in Matthew 5, Jesus obviously isn't disparaging the law of Moses. He isn't disparaging the command, you shall not murder. But what he is doing is he's pushing hard against the leather of the law that the Pharisees would have taught. The Pharisees were all about external actions and not the internal heart. So, for example, if you went to a Saturday school class with a Pharisee and the topic was murder, he might have taught something like this. Oh, Moses said, you shall not murder. You're a good Jew if you don't kill. That doesn't mean you can't be mad. Doesn't mean you can't be furious. Doesn't mean you can't hate. Doesn't mean you can't stop speaking to him. But as long as you don't kill him. You are a good law keeper. That's a lesson a Pharisee would teach. And Jesus is saying, no. 
the integrity and the principles of the new covenant go to the core of the heart, that even a murderous attitude is such a violation of the holiness of God that the unrepentant person was guilty enough for eternal punishment. And the reason that Jesus is characterizing is we're going to see an abiding and a continual anger, an anger that you refuse to let go of. He's characterizing this because it goes to the heart of whether you're genuinely a new covenant believer or not. And he intensifies three expressions of anger, which are worth digging into here. We're going to do these one at a time. The first expression of anger that he outlines we'll call reviling your brother in the mind. Reviling your brother in the mind. Now, I'm going to define reviling more in a little bit. But for now, reviling is simply the verbal or the thought abuse of another. Reviling is the verbal or the thought abuse of another. This is a term for anger that is extremely intense, who is angry with his brother. In Matthew's gospel, it's only used to speak of anger that is the precursor to sinful, destructive actions. In the parable of the wicked servant who wouldn't forgive a debt, Jesus uses this term of the master's the servant's master in Matthew eighteen thirty four moved with anger. He handed the servant over to torturers to torture him. Matthew twenty two seven. Jesus uses this word to speak of a king who went after murderers, and this wouldn't be a sinful action; it would be a destructive action. Though the king was enraged, same Greek word, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. The point is here is that Jesus is assigning an extremely high level of seriousness to this anger. This isn't minor irritation. This isn't frustration. This is a fury that won't let up. It won't stop. But we should note this. Unchecked and habitual irritation and frustration which isn't dealt with, which you don't recognize, which you don't think is sinful, which you don't check when it's not locked down and dealt with quickly it turns into this habitual, rageful anger that's just a habit now. And you notice here that Jesus pays special attention to the dynamic of the relationship between brother and brother, members of the same faith community that we now call the church. Jesus was especially sensitive to his insistence that brothers in Christ treat each other as brothers in Christ with grace and with compassion Matthew 25, 40, Jesus is seen to give special reward and mercy to those who treat his brothers with love and kindness. A father on this earth doesn't like to see any children who don't get along or who torment or terrorize another child. But there's a whole other level of involvement and ire when it's his own child that's being bullied, right? There's a higher level still of indignation when siblings torture each other. And they won't love each other. Why? Because they're both connected relationally to the Father. And so Jesus portrays the mistreatment and the furious, continual, unceasing anger of one believer toward another as more serious, more critical, more terrible than between a believer and an unbeliever. And in fact, Paul confirms this special love, this special deference that ought to exist. He says in Galatians 6.10, So then, while we have opportunity... Let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, 
Jesus has said that this habit of anger is so serious that if you were to be taken to the local town court, you would be convicted of murder. And this alone should stop you in your tracks. This alone should warn you. This alone should provoke you to self-examination. But Jesus has barely begun. Now he escalates this to the next level. Not only does he address this first expression of anger, reviling your brother in the mind. We haven't even got to what comes out of the mouth yet. Now he heightens to a second expression of anger, reviling the humanity of the brother. Reviling the humanity of the brother. And now the thoughts are expressed in words. One word in Jesus' summary, whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. This is an offense worthy of an even higher court. The English Standard Version says whoever insults his brother, but the legacy standard sticks closer and just gives the original Greek word, Raka. It literally means empty-headed, or we would say dimwit, or numbskull. It's to call him dumb, it's to call him stupid. Now, perhaps in a moment of fun joking during the game or during teasing, you might use some of those words. You might say, I just said nitwit last night to the guy I was playing this game with. That's not what Jesus is speaking here of. Jesus is speaking of dehumanizing someone in order to elevate yourself, of brutalizing and degrading and debasing someone by letting them know that you believe them to be so low that they're of a different order of creature. They're empty-headed. This isn't just an insult to someone's intelligence. This is assigning them the quality of being less human, less important, less valuable, less worth than what's the point of comparison? Well, me, of course. This is, and I don't use this term lightly, this is a Nazi attitude. And why do I say that? This is a Nazi attitude that says that your value is based on your intelligence or ability or contribution. It was the Raqqa attitude that so seared the conscience of men that they could murder millions of people in gas chambers in World War II. It's a heartless and cruel view of another person of, as being of less value. How was it that, that men who 10 years earlier were just farm boys pushing a plow or, or driving a tractor on their farm were now turning the valves to kill millions of Jews? How was that? because they were trained that the Jews were less than them. They were subhuman. They weren't worth worrying about. That's why they could turn the knobs and not think a second thing about it. The expression of verbal abuse is meant to dehumanize, to harm, to degrade, and yes, to control the other person. Bullies have been doing this for millennia, from schoolyards to entire government policies. And Jesus is deadly serious about this. This grievous offense of assigning a lower value, reviling a brother, takes you to the highest court of Jerusalem, as it were. Now, what is reviling, and why is it so serious? Reviling is more commonly referred to in our modern era as verbal or emotional abuse. Those are the terms we use. In the Bible, there are three Hebrew words and eight Greek words commonly translated revile 
each with a particular nuance or variation. I could take a long time on this, but to give you a very, very short, summarized version, to boil all these terms down to their various meanings, here's a synthesis of reviling and how it's spoken of in Scripture, what we would call verbal abuse. One word, it means to verbally curse someone and to characterize them as less, as insignificant, as trivial. Another word means to have the heart attitude of contempt, which turns into taunts and insults. It can mean to dishonor and to disrespect verbally with an attitude of disdain, that you have no problem with these words coming out of your mouth because you believe them. It can be a decision to reject or discard a person as an object of scorn, and you confirm this verbally. I want nothing to do with you. You are less than me. It can mean to verbally and abusively characterize someone as evil based on the misjudgment of that person or based on the information that you choose to take into consideration. It can just flat out mean to verbally intimidate someone and threaten another with harm. It can mean to habitually reproach and insult another in a way which eventually may show an unregenerate heart. Why is this so serious? This is, as Jesus has characterized it, verbal murder. It is the dehumanizing of another person. And I know it's tempting to say, whew, I'm so thankful that would never happen in the church. My experience in the ministry has taught me otherwise. And the detail of Jesus' instruction on this matter tells us otherwise. Because who is he speaking to? Brother to brother. The dehumanizing of another leads to an inability to see that person in light of their value to Christ, in light of their humanity, as a person with feelings and concerns and hurts. And thus we murder one another with a word or use treatment that's worse than the murdering word. Now you may hear this and you may have said it. Well, I didn't mean it. Or there was no anger behind that when I called you those 19 names. I didn't mean it. There was no anger. Yes, there was. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. To say I didn't mean it says I'm not going to repent because I didn't actually sin. Words were detached from my heart. They just, from from here on up, they just came out. Now, absolutely, you may have regret and you may Two seconds later, say, that was a wrong attitude to have in my heart, but it did come from your heart. That's why Jesus is addressing this. There's no words that just pop out without them being in your heart first. But that's only the second level of sinful expression of anger. The first expression, reviling your brother in the mind. The second expression, reviling the humanity of the brother. Now Jesus takes it to just a white, hot, escalating level. The third expression of anger reviling the salvation of the brother. Reviling the salvation of the brother. Now we're taken to the very courts of heaven. This must be decided only in heaven. And Jesus declares that anyone who says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You fool is the Greek word in which we get our epithet moron. And it's tempting to, to chuckle at that. And now that's more used as just kind of somebody who doesn't quite have it all together and so forth. 
This is a word representing an attitude of anger that goes beyond even reviling the humanity of a brother. In English, it's presented as a noun, you fool. In Greek, it's an adjective. It describes you. It defines you. This is who you are to the core of your being. Now, why is this so serious? Listen to the other ways this same root word is used in Matthew. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns to not be the foolish man, same word, who built his house on the sand by not believing the word of Christ. In Matthew 23, 17, Jesus calls the arrogant scribes and Pharisees fools and blind men, same word. In Matthew 25, 2 and 3, Jesus gives the parable of five foolish and five prudent virgins on their way to a wedding. And later in the parable, they're divided into the foolish and the prudent again. The foolish are kept out of the kingdom. The prudent are let in. Why is this so serious? Because in all of these cases, including here in Matthew 5, this word refers to an unbeliever whose destiny is judgment and hell. And so when Jesus describes calling someone, you fool, this is a short way of saying that you're making a declaration that the brother with whom you're angry is in your mind unworthy of salvation. And what's the obvious implication? But I am. Now to be clear, this is not a sense of concern. This is not a sense of warning a professing believer about their lack of spiritual fruit to to drive them to examine their faith of lovingly sharing with one who claims to be a Christian. Look, I love you. I care about you. And your life doesn't bear any observable fruit. And that concerns me. And I'm, I'm worried about that. And I'm praying for you. No, this is totally different. This is the gleeful, joyful, self-righteous declaration that a professing brother is not saved simply because you're angry. And for this expression of anger, Jesus takes you to the highest court, the court of heaven in which you yourself are declared worthy of the fiery hell. Turn with me to Matthew 18, just a few pages over. Because we might be tempted to think that there is a time to declare the certain knowledge that the professing believer is an unbeliever. In Matthew 18, when Jesus defends the purity of the church, he gives the procedure for helping one another with sin. Matthew 18, verse 15. Now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. This is often referred to as step one. Verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. This is often referred to as step two. Verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is calling upon the church or perhaps a portion of the church who best knows a person to urge this stubborn person to repentance. This is his third opportunity. This is often referred to as step three. But if after three opportunities to repent, there continues to be a stubborn pride and a willfulness, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, verse 17, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. This is often referred to as step four. And in step four, the person is to be 
thought of and treated as a Gentile and a tax collector, as an unbeliever. But I want you to notice something very carefully here. This is not a declaration of the salvation status of that person. Nobody has the power to do that. No group of elders can stand up before the church and say, we have determined that we know for certain that this person's destiny is hell. No human has that right or ability. What is this then? It's a determination that this person is acting so much like an unbeliever that when those in the church come across this disfellowship person, they're to call him to repentance as if he's an unbeliever. And that's not an act of hatred or anger. That's an act of love. And yes, we may discern the very high likelihood of the false salvation of a professing Christian based on the total lack of spiritual fruit, based on consistent displays of prideful selfishness, but it's in the spirit of concern and love and desire for reconciliation and hope for this person. This is a far cry from because I'm angry with you, I will declare you are lost. You are going to hell. A pronouncement of the unsaved status of someone because of your hatred and venom toward him. Turn back to Matthew 5.22 and as you do so, picture yourself as one of Jesus' listeners on this beautiful hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. They knew the law of Moses. They knew the sixth commandment. But Jesus is literally assigning eternal punishment to the one who holds on to this habitual abiding anger. Now, are you, are you catching the irony here? The irony is that the one who proclaims the lost status of another is himself potentially the actual false believer. At the very least, Jesus is saying that this verbal murder, this reviling of the salvation of the brother is worthy of hell. You may be a believer doing this and he's reminding you, if you weren't saved, this would send you to hell. Jesus is abundantly and lavishly clear that God is not concerned with just external actions, not concerned with just keeping the letter of the law. Now he's asserting that the, the abiding anger is worthy of hell and that this internal sin, internal sin, is the letter of the law now. He's given the expression of anger of reviling your brother in the mind, reviling the humanity of the brother, and reviling the salvation of of the brother, and so he's exposed various ways that sinful men they express their anger. This escalating sequence of intensi- intensifying severity, and now the conjunction at the beginning of verse twenty-three, therefore, indicates he's now going to give some practical application, and he does so in the form of two examples: two examples of following him in obedience to his commands concerning anger. The first is an example between two brothers, two believers in Christ. And the second is an example between a believer and anyone else. So in this first example, after giving the foundation, he gives the example between two believers. Verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now, in the Matthew 18 example, 
it was the responsibility of the offended party to go to the offender. But now it's the opposite. The offending party has the responsibility. The one who has sinned. But remember the context. The context is abiding, furious anger. This is a situation in which your anger, your pride, your stubbornness, your indignation has led you down a sinful road of not reconciling with your brother. This is important. This is the key to the whole thing. It assumes that the other brother desires reconciliation and yet in your anger, you have not granted it. That's the situation. I can't emphasize enough the radical nature of what Jesus is describing here, of leaving your sacrifice at the altar. The worshiper has brought a live animal to sacrifice to the Lord. He's seeking a right and a restored relationship with God. When you offered a sacrifice, you were to reflect on your guilt. You were to reflect on your need for forgiveness from God. And in this situation, the worshiper knows that there is a brother, a member of the community of faith that has something against him. Now, the assumption Jesus makes in this story is a legitimate grievance. And the worshiper has remembered that his brother, his fellow in the faith, has been ill-treated in some way. Here is the radical nature of what Jesus is describing and how it comes into play. The worshiper has brought an offering. This is not money. This is not food. He has brought a live animal. He is to leave it at the altar. What does this mean? It means that he binds the legs of the offering and, and, and leaves it there, the still living animal. He leaves it and he goes to offer restitution to his offended brother. And this is happening in Jerusalem. If you happen to live in Galilee, this means you're leaving that animal there with a little bit of food and water because you won't be back for a week. How do we know that Jesus is referring to leaving the live animal? Because the whole point is that the worshiper is to stop the process of worship and sacrifice is the culmination of worship. If he had made the sacrifice, then worship is done. It's over. He didn't stop it. This is radical. It's just literally stopping at the moment where you're going to dare to ask God's forgiveness. Of course, we have a new covenant counterpart, the celebration of the Lord's table, which is the reenactment of what? The sacrifice of Christ. This is a time for wiping the slate clean with anyone who has an offense against you that you're aware of to at least offer repentance. This has important precedence in the law of Moses. Moses taught that before a worshiper offered a sacrifice for his own sin, he first had to make restitution with the one he had offended. Leviticus 6, beginning in verse 1, gives this situation. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, If a person sins and acts unfaithfully against Yahweh and deals falsely with his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him, or through robbery, or if he is extorted from his companion, or has found what was lost and dealt falsely about it and sworn falsely, so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do, then it shall be, when he sins and becomes guilty, that he shall return what he took by robbery, or what he got by extortion, or the deposit which was entrusted to him, or the lost thing which he found, or anything about which he swore falsely, he shall make restitution for it in full and add to it one-fifth more. He shall give it 
to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to Yahweh, a ram without blemish from the flock, according to your valuation for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before Yahweh, and he shall be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. Did you notice the order of events? You make restitution first, a tangible way of asking for forgiveness, and then you ask for God's forgiveness. What is restitution? It is, to the best of your ability, righting the wrong that you've committed. If you've gossiped, it's repenting to those to whom you've gossiped and about whom you've gossiped. If you've sinned against someone in some way that costs them time or money, it's making restitution as you're able to do so. If you've sinned verbally against someone, you ought to provide a commitment that this will be a, a spiritual focus for you to be more sanctified and that this person can expect improvement and expect better treatment. In other words, there are actions associated with genuine repentance. In fact, rabbis in Jesus' day and in the centuries following taught very openly that a sacrifice was pointless. It was useless if restitution wasn't made first. This is true repentance. True repentance is an inward attitude of desire to restore a relationship with actions, not merely saying, I'm sorry. What does saying I'm sorry do? All it does is inform you that I am experiencing the emotion of sorrow. It really has more to do with me than it does with you. Now, why is this so important? This is important because in the context of the foundation that Jesus has laid in verses 21 and 22, the believer who continues in worship while fully knowing that another has a grievance against him, it's possible to work out this grievance. This believer is arrogantly refusing to deal with it. Why? Because of prideful, abiding anger. And he has the gall and the nerve to celebrate the forgiveness of God while maintaining imperishable resentment against a brother. Reconciliation always has priority over worship. Dealing with your sinful anger and indignation always has priority over your worship. And there's multiple incredibly important and key Old Testament passages that delineate this concept as well, that obedience must precede worship. 1 Samuel 15, 22 Samuel said, Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Hosea 6, 6, For I delight in loving kindness rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah 6, beginning in verse 6, With what shall I come before Yahweh and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Is Yahweh pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, the worshiper is saying, what if I even brought my firstborn? How much can I worship God? But then there's a contrast. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice, to love loving kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? In other words, forget all that if you're unwilling to get right with your brother. 
The principle here is clear. Asking God to forgive you, but not going to the brother is an offense to God. He doesn't desire your worship. He's unimpressed by it. And in fact, it's offensive to him. The second example Jesus gives, this is between the believer and anyone else. The believer and anyone else. Verse 25, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last quadrants. That's a way of saying the last penny. It's one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. The last little bit. And so now Jesus uses a scenario from the legal realm. Now, just to be clear, this is not a command to Christians that all frivolous lawsuits must be surrendered and settled. That's not what this is. What's most important to this example is the assumption of the guilt of the Christian. He does owe money or he does owe something to the one who's taking him to court. In this scenario, Jesus says it's wisest to seek a settlement before the trial begins because if it goes to trial, and remember, the story assumes the guilt of the believer, then the fullest and the harshest penalty is most liable to be given. Now, in the context of verses 21 and 22, what would prevent the Christian who knows he's guilty, who knows that the verdict is coming, what would prevent him from trying to work it out on a personal level with this opponent? Prideful, abiding anger and bitterness and resentment, which he would rather fight than resolve. As a pastor, I have seen Christians just destroy their own lives because they can't get something right with one person. And they would rather have all kinds of punishment from God, all kinds of discipline, all kinds of terrible things come into their lives rather than say, I'm going to go humble myself with this person. One scholar wrote this, one should settle things before the anger escalates, before words are uttered that cannot be taken back or before wounds are inflicted that are painful and slow to heal. Biting anger toward others, toward the other, causes stubbornness. I've seen this more times than I care to think about. It's amazing to me that even when a believer is called out for sin, he gets angry at the one who's calling him out for sin. I would say that happens more than it doesn't. This just heightens the pride of the original sin. This is the classic tactic of, of one trying to avoid humble repentance or accountability, attacking back. In this case, the other party isn't taking the Christian to court because the Christian, or is taking him to court rather, because the Christian won't work with him. He won't deal reasonably And he continues in abiding anger even to his own harm when the penalty grows. Now, obviously in this case, and this does happen, in this case, there's a way bigger issue at play here. There's a way bigger issue than than my difficulties with an unbeliever or anyone else. The other much more important underlying issue is the witness of the grace of God and salvation can be irreparably harmed by your actions. On the other hand, Your genuine, humble repentance could demonstrate the effect of God's grace in your life in the eyes of the unbeliever. This is a much bigger issue than the stubborn refusal to work things out if it's possible. These are two real-life examples and applications that Jesus gives. Anger between believers and anger between the believer and anyone else. I want to spend the remainder of our moments together, though, returning to those three expressions of anger 
Jesus outlines, reviling your brother in the mind, reviling the humanity of the brother, and reviling the salvation of the brother. Because this brings up a grave and much higher level concern. The highest of all concerns. Earlier we talked about the sinful side of assigning a value to another, of the condemnation of Raka, you empty-headed one, of dehumanizing someone. Scripture does, however, assign nicknames. Scripture assigns nicknames to one who refuses to repent, who refuses to show sorrow concerning a particular sin, and the nickname is that he's named after that sin. The Apostle Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, for example. He nicknames those who refuse to repent of sexual immorality as the sexually immoral. He nicknames those who steal without repentance as thieves. He nicknames those who are consumed with possessions or having whatever they want that they desire as the greedy. And and he nicknames those who exert abuse of power and control over others with words, refusing to humble themselves. Those who are controlled by prideful, abiding anger, he nicknames them revilers. And what is this grave and highest level of all concerns? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.10, revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. That the choice to ignore the teaching of Jesus on this is in fact an indicator of not being regenerate. Paul himself states this. I mentioned this example a week or two ago and it's so powerful and so conclusive that I want to bring up again the example of the Apostle Paul. Acts 23, 1 through 3, you don't have to turn there, just listen. Paul has been brought before the Sanhedrin. He's brought before the Supreme Court, as it were. Now Paul, looking intently at the Sanhedrin, said, Brothers, I have lived my life in all good conscience before God up to this day. Very nice statement. Good opening argument. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Totally different mood here all of a sudden. Let me point out several features of this stunning episode here. First of all, Paul is in custody and on trial for doing nothing more than proclaiming the gospel. Secondly, when the high priest had Paul struck, Paul was correct that this was a flagrant violation of his rights as a Jew and it was contrary to God's law that you never, ever issued punishment before a verdict was rendered. There's a third feature. Paul is clearly and justifiably angry. He literally pronounces what we might call an apostolic curse on Ananias. But at this point, Paul is unaware this is the high priest, a wicked high priest to be sure, but the high priest nonetheless. But here's the the big takeaway. Paul was clearly angered. He was clearly incensed. But something happened to change his direction immediately. Verse 4 of Acts 23 says, But those standing nearby said, Do you revile the high priest of God? Did you catch that? Do you revile the high priest of God? And Paul said, I was not aware, brothers, that he was high priest. For it is written, 
you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. When he was informed that he had just spoken that way of the high priest, that anger evaporated. There was no sense of, well, he had it coming, or he deserved it, or, well, he sinned first, so my sin doesn't count. In fact, Paul didn't demand anything. He didn't say, well, as soon as he repents, I will, or we need to call in a mediator to talk between us here. He simply concerned himself with his own response and he quoted the scripture that he had violated. Exodus twenty two twenty eight. He repented for sinning against God's law, even though it was unintentional and done in ignorance. He dealt with the one person for whom he was responsible, himself. Are you growing in patience? Are you growing in humility? I know it's a lifetime endeavor. Are you growing in your ability to receive correction without retort or a yeah, but or sharp self-justifying answers? Are you growing in your ability to self-correct? I gave you the example of the tribulation martyrs in Revelation 6 just to give you hope that we won't be completely done with this process until we are home in heaven. But the Lord Jesus expects us to make upward strides. The faithful new covenant follower of Christ deals with this issue head on out of love for the Lord, denial of self. That's characteristic of the new covenant believer. And where does it start? Where does all of this start? It starts in the mind. That we discipline the mind. And what are you to think? How are you to discipline your mind? What you are to think is to remember that Jesus cried out, It is finished. After suffering on the cross on behalf of the one that you were tempted to maintain sinful, abiding anger against. My urge to you is to confront yourself. To confront yourself about growing in patience and humility and the ability to receive correction without a retort, without sharp self-justifying answers, to self-correct quickly. My urging to you is to discipline the mind. And we're told to do this in this classic command from the Apostle Paul. He says in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And you know what we get in the church then? You know what we get brother to brother, sister to sister? We get sweet, harmonious relationships. And why is that so important? Because that's the foundation upon which God builds a church that will effectively proclaim the gospel to a dying world. I've lost track of the number of times I've heard from non-Christians I can't go to church because all they do is fight there. I don't know what to say to that, except you're right. Why don't you come join in and we'll just do this all together and hear the gospel at least. Sweet, harmonious relationships in our new covenant community, the church. That's what pleases the Lord. He told the church at Ephesus, you need to return to your first what? Love. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of Christ's words. They are are sharp. 
They're cutting. They're direct. They don't leave any doubts. There's no ambiguity. There's no vagueness. There's no gray areas. He simply said, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty. And so, Lord, I pray first for myself and I pray for each person here on our journey of sanctification to becoming more like Christ. Help us to make greater strides more quickly. Help us as individuals to be characterized as those who have great, tremendous patience and grace and that we view one another as you view us, as those who have been made righteous through Christ. That we believe the best about one another, that we are careful even with our thoughts, because from our thoughts, from our our heart, words proceed that can't be taken back, that may be forgiven but have difficulty being forgotten. Would you allow us the privilege of growing in this area so that we as a church body compositely together, that our reputation would be known as Grace Bible Church we proclaim the grace of God and we demonstrate the grace of God from the privacy of our marriages to the more public relationships that we have with one another. Be pleased to do this in us to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave us these commands. Amen.